Over the years of my ministry, several experiences have been indelibly linked with certain scripture readings for me personally. One such experience from a number of years ago relates to this particular day, the fifth Sunday in Lent and our stories from Ezekiel and John. I was attending a workshop in New Orleans at an organization for recently paroled prisoners transitioning back into society. The program used some traditional methods, methods such as uh, re-education and mentoring, but the founder located its real power in a process of mutual self-help and spiritual encouragement he called community building. Sitting in a circle for a number of hours several times a week, these 50 or so prisoners or ex-prisoners spilled out their stories, sharing their defeats, celebrating their victories as they engaged the long, hard process of rebuilding their identities and place in the world. The stories I heard were severe. The 21-year-old sitting next to me, tried and convicted as an adult at the age of 14, released just six months earlier. The 45-year-old woman who became a crack addict at the age of nine. Other stories recalled murdered brothers, sexual abuse, parents dead by overdose, the devastation of crushing poverty, all manner of human calamity and deprivation. Their stories leaked out as the men and women told of how their lives had been transformed by the love and care they found in this program. Their gratitude was overflowing. One man spoke simply and eloquently for the group when he said that what the program had given him, something he thought he had lost forever, was his dignity. I shed many tears during this shared experience. And at some point I realized that that these tears were not about the suffering. Instead, they were really a response to the palpable opportunity at resurrection these women and men were experiencing. Through their surrender to a spirit that was larger than, than their own and their willingness to extend themselves to reach out to one another, this unlikely company made the plain industrial room that in which we were meeting, they made that plain industrial room a very sacred space. From the moment I walked through the door and first experienced their respectful silence, I really felt the space was holier than many churches I had been in in my life. At one point during their sharing, one of the participants recalled the story of the bone-rattling imagery from Ezekiel you heard a moment ago. 
She must have dug it out from a childhood memory of Sunday school. And honestly, I swear to God, I nearly heard the rattling and clattering of bones coming together in that experience. I looked and there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them and the breath came into them and they they lived. Their lives were not easy by any reasonable measure. They spoke of many failures as well as a few astounding successes. But they were filled with a vital hope. It struck me as a lot more hope than many persons who had been blessed by a far richer environment, by far more education and material prosperity. It occurred to me at the time that this experience would have brought tears even to the eyes of the most entrenched cynic. And strangely, these might be the tears of identification. And I say strangely because most of us in this room today probably wouldn't automatically identify with these people. But you know, when actually bearing witness to something dead being brought back to life, most of us will feel a strum on a deep inner cord. I'm thinking that all of us, at least once in a while, sense death lurking about whether or not we ever speak of it and long for a word of hope. Ezekiel had gone into long exile with his people in the 6th century BCE, 2,600 years ago. Sharing their devastating experience, he knows their state of mind. He's heard their complaints. The people say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. God resides elsewhere. They've been cut off at the root. The smell of death hangs in the air. And Ezekiel hears God's voice. Mortal, can these bones live? I'm thinking Mary and Martha may have heard a similar voice in their despair over the death of their brother Lazarus. But now concerning the matter of death, we are completely the same regardless of background or present status. Whether you have a doctorate from Harvard or have failed to get a high school diploma, whether you have a hundred million dollars or just ten, whether you are blessed with dazzling physical beauty or not, whether you command the attention of thousands or only your cat, and then only occasionally, (laughs) each of us has a finite number of hours on this earth. We're all alike in this regard. If I had another opportunity for a second sermon, I would unpack that a bit and tell you much of the world's trauma comes about from our pretending that we are not alike in this manner.
As the story is told, Jesus will raise Lazarus to physical life, but really it's only a postponement for a more permanent change. In a few more months or years or even another decade or two, Lazarus' earthly life will leave him for good. Jesus has another order of magnitude in mind when he speaks as the one who is the resurrection and the life. We know this because of what will soon befall him. Easter is just a few short weeks away. The story from John, you see, is a bit of an Easter tease here as Jesus continues his dramatic journey to Jerusalem and we continue our season of Lent. Death has many guises, of course. From Jesus' perspective, it's entirely possible to have physical life and still be mostly dead. Have you ever seen that? Or perhaps even experienced that yourself in some desperate time. I've spoken with many people over the years that have been in some stage of decay, despair, or hopelessness. It's not so very uncommon, really. I suspect, in fact, that a condition like this visits nearly everyone at some time or another before our final breath. Virginia Mullencott, emeritus professor of English and theologian, said that she loved to watch students come alive. One of the courses I teach is freshman English, she once wrote. And that's a place where you can empower people. They often come to you beaten down. Before I pass back their first graded paper, I give them a little speech. This grade is not for you. This grade is for a piece of work you turned in. And then I ask them if they want to know what I think of them, and usually they want to. So I continue. I think you are made in the image of God and of inestimable worth. There's no way anything I could put in my grade book could ever begin to estimate you. I learned to do this after I read Flannery O'Connor's story about the boy who went up in the attic and drew a circle with a big F in the middle and then hanged himself over the F. He didn't distinguish between the grade he was getting and who he was. For me, the meaning of life is to share with people the wonderful news that we are the daughters and sons of God. And I would add that That's what many of those paroled men and women in the reentry program were discovering. In fact, though this was not a faith-based program per se, I was struck by how many of them made offhand references to God in their storytelling. No hyper-religious soliloquies, but respectful, hopeful references to faith and a source of hope beyond themselves, as though this was a common language of life for them. So in addition to the Ezekiel passage, I heard a reference to Lazarus as well. At one point, one of the participants said to the young man sitting next to me, that 21-year-old who had been incarcerated at the age of 14, Jeff, I swear to God, your Lazarus come out of the grave. Now I doubt the majority of those that were present knew the reference, but I did. And it's the reason I remember it so well on the fifth Sunday of Lent. 
Desolation and hope commingled in that room, but there was no question that hope, the spirit of life, had the larger claim on the intentions of their hearts. Ezekiel preached a powerful word about God's life-giving spirit. God's breath enters the dry bones and brings them to life. And what he's saying is that what is impossible for hopeless, lifeless humanity to imagine is for God a simple exhalation. Where God breathes, life springs up. This defines God's nature. Ezekiel's vision of a desecrated valley fully restored is a powerful metaphor of what God accomplishes with another set of lifeless bones nailed to a wooden crossbeam in first century Palestine. And, friends, remarkably, It foreshadows what's possible for anyone who feels at any moment that he or she is part of the company of the walking dead. If that has ever defined your situation or the situation of someone you know, take heart. Breathe deeply. It's God's pleasure to fill your lungs with God's own breath. Considering the state of our very troubled and fractious nation and world, let's take heart together, too. Take heart. Breathe deeply. Claim the promise that's found on the other side of every death-dealing circumstance. Joining forces with the breath of life. That's bracing.